I just love what you do for me. You're so reliable, smart and incredibly well-connected. <clears throat> Excuse me, could I pay for my meal? Oh, of course, just having a moment with my Combank Smart Terminal. Tap away. Feel a stronger connection. With extra connectivity, you're always payment ready. There's more to love with the Combank Smart Terminal. Mm, it is a nice terminal. Eligibility criteria, fees and T's and C's apply. Hey, welcome to the Medicubes podcast, where we bring you all that's good, exciting and sometimes challenging in primary health care. I'm Chris Spee, joined by my good friends Kim Pointer and Rivka Hagen. Together we bring a wealth of experience and passion, as well as being in the thick of what's going on in our industry. We used to have a laugh, debrief and chat about all the big issues and what was happening in our own professional worlds and invite you to join us in this conversation. So join us and our invited guests every month to bring you a lighthearted take on the latest, greatest and controversial issues and a few pearls of wisdom along the way. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. A hearty welcome from Birupai country. And uh, Rivka Hagen here. I'm meeting you from Jajawurrun country. And a big hello from Turbul and Jagara country. Hello, wonderful Medicubes podcast listeners. This episode's a bit different to some regular episodes. We're actually joining forces with Practice Coach Australia to present a recording from a recent webinar that Ritka and Kim were part of. They were joined by Tracy Johnson having a chat about voluntary patient enrollment and what might be coming up in the primary care space. This is going to be a two-parter with part one in this episode. Hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to this uh, webinar presented to you by Practice Coach. My name is Simon Matthews. I'm a director of Practice Coach along with uh, three of my colleagues here that you see on the screen, Dr. Tony Lemke, Kim Pointer, and Ritka Hagen. And uh, joining us also is a very special guest, uh, Tracy Johnson. And uh, Tracy uh, is the CEO of Anala Primary Care, a charitable multidisciplinary teaching and research uh, general practice. Uh, in Queensland's most disadvantaged suburban location. In 2015, Tracy undertook a Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellowship, and she studied how to bring care out of hospitals into the community. She remains uh, active in research through co-designing new models of care at the practice. She's a member of the, the Evaluation Working Group of the Australasian Healthcare Homes Program and Voluntary Patient Registration Working Groups. And she's also a deputy chair of the primary care advisory group of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare uh, to support practices, build performance. Uh, Tracy co-founded Cubico, a practice management dashboard software solution back in 2018. What we're endeavoring to do today is to have a conversation in which all of the issues uh, can be fleshed out in a way that respects the variety of opinions in a way which is curious about the perspectives of others. And it's our hope that from this, you'll walk away with an enhanced understanding of the nuances involved in this area uh, and able to form your own view about what matters and what's important here. Tony, I would love you to uh, start us off, if you would, please, and uh, share with us some, uh, some ideas around this. Yeah, thanks, Simon, and thanks everyone for joining us. Voluntary patient enrollment is relevant in the context of the medical home, which is in the Australian aspect. It's a person's medical home. It's the general practice or the Aboriginal medical service that they choose to be accountable for providing and coordinating 
their ongoing health care. So in the medical home model, patients and their families have a continuing relationship with a particular GP. That partnership is supported by practice team and other clinical services in the medical neighborhood wrap around that patient and their families as they require. So a medical home is a general practice or Aboriginal medical service that has certain characteristics that provide comprehensive, coordinated, accessible care, have a focus on quality and safety to support those people who choose to be uh, patients of the medical home. Why is the medical home concept important? We know that our communities need high quality general practice. Uh, we want general practice as general practitioners want to work in a system that enables them to deliver the highest standards of care to each of their patients. And the person-centered medical home has been defined and evaluated extensively in the medical literature. So it's been demonstrated to be effective and efficient way to provide primary care. It's preferred by patients and providers. It's been shown to improve health outcomes and it delivers better valued care to the community. So what's been proposed recently in regards to the medical home model and voluntary patient in Rome? was the primary health reform steering group that met for a couple of years and reported in September 2021, a 10-year plan for primary care in Australia. They advocated what they termed a single primary health care destination, which we may interpret as a medical home or a healthcare home or general practice and average medical service. And they said, and this is from their report, voluntary patient registration with a provider and practice to establish a formal agreement between patients and a clinical home base for optimal coordination, management, and support for ongoing healthcare, which enables patients and providers to work together with the wider health system to improve partnership, identify accountability for ongoing preventative ongoing care, reduce duplication of services and unnecessary tests, and deliver better healthcare across the system. The main details that have been proposed in the 10-year plan is that the government will invest $69 million in services Australia to create a voluntary patient registration scheme. Patients to be eligible for registration must have visited a practice three times in a two year span, and then once every two years thereafter to maintain their registration. Only registered patients will be able to access MBS funded telehealth. And over the next decade, it's envisaged that the payments linked to quality and outcome measures rather than fee for service will make up to 40% of primary care funding. Now, this concept of voluntary patient registration has been supported by both the RACGP and the AMA, uh, strongly in support of voluntary patient registration. But that's the proposal, Simon, and that's the background. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate that. I'm going to immediately now, Tracy, invite you first to share some, uh, some views about that. And Rishka and Kim also uh, following Tracy. I might start by declaring that I'm a health economist. So data and, and nerdy things really excite me just as much as running the practice here is my passion and love. So context, when Medicare was created, there were 14 taxpayers for every pensioner. We're now down to seven. So we've seen a halving and over the next few years, that's going to fall to four. So we've got a massive fiscal problem in this country where we simply can't afford to keep funding things the way we do. We've got the Defence Department saying they need more things that go bang because China and Russia might do nasty things. And we've got lots of elderly patients going, I'm sorry, but I can't even get into a hospital. So we've got this real financial crisis and then COVID came along and made it a whole lot worse. So the reality that we need to face, and I like speaking pragmatically, is that there is no magic pudding budget that we can just go, 
make my world a better place by giving me billions of dollars more because there's not the tax base to give us that billions of dollars more. On top of that, Australia has one of the most expensive per patient healthcare systems at a user level. So on average, patients are paying upwards of $1,000 to access providers, whereas in other countries in the world, that sort of -of out-of-pocket expense simply doesn't exist. So we're creating hurdles for people to access care by cost. We're also creating hurdles for care around access because in most GP practices now, there's doctors, if not all of the doctors, who are not taking new patients. So simply getting access to care is becoming a problem. So this is our context, and I really want to point to that because the other context that we're hearing a lot about is more than 70% of practices are saying they're not sustainable, and they're not. I'm one of those. I'll put my hand up going, budget is a struggle. And then attracting good people into healthcare is a struggle. We've got a massive workforce competition amongst us. We're not just healthcare, but every system is competing. So Deloitte have just produced a report saying that if we continue the way we're currently delivering care for a population that's aging and getting more chronic, we're going to have 48% of the workforce working in healthcare. At the moment, it's 11%. Now, clearly with a falling tax base, we're never going to afford 48% of the budget being health workforce. So we've got to do something quite radical and quite different. I'm not Mm. saying registration is radical, but I'm saying we need to be open to change. So why for me is registration so fundamental? If I look at our 6,700 active patients, so we're a decent-sized general practice in a decent-sized town called Brisbane, um, we believe in registration because right now, if you look at our patient charts, more than 80% of our patient charts say usual doctor and that field is populated. Why do we do it now even before there's a payment model around that? Because we believe in continuous comprehensive care. We believe that patients are more likely to share and disclose what's going on with them. It's easier for the doctor's cognitive load if they know the patient, they know the patient history, they know the family history, they know all of that stuff. When you've got rising complexity amongst your patient group, and in 2016, for the first time in this country, the thing tipped. More than half of our work in general practice was chronic disease care for the very first time, and it's getting worse. So just for you to survive the day, somebody like Tony, who practices with patients every single day, it's not easier if you just know what's in front of you and you're not having to think about it really hard. Um, so that's where continuous care, which is what registration does, it says, who's my doctor, who's my nurse, who's my allied health professional? And you've kind of got a sense of who's the patient and what's important to them. Whereas I think in the past, we've had a system much too oriented to what's important to providers. We need to be asking what's important to the patient so that we deliver to the patients what they value. If they value it, they'll advocate for it politically and they'll also value it because they'll get to experience better care. And I think the reality for us is when we've got a very fragmented system and we have one of the most fragmented systems in the world, um, patients at the moment kind of get a bit lost very easily. They get very frustrated and so do providers. Whereas at least if we're saying, this is my patient, I'm responsible for what happens to this patient. They know I'm responsible. They're going to trust me with that. We get a whole different conversation going. So that's the context that I think registration needs to be put in. Mm. Thanks, Tracy. Appreciate that. Um, Kim. Yeah, well, I echo a lot of what you say, particularly about chronic disease management, because what we want is streamlined, continuous care, less duplication, as you said, less fragmentation where there's you know, one client who's been governed, or we want to keep people at home where they feel well supported, they're getting care in terms of prevention, as well as their chronic disease management. And, you know, we can get good team-based care if it's been delivered under one roof. If not, you know, as you say, you might have to go to that broader medical neighborhood, but it's still that person's team. 
rather than someone can't get into their GP practice, they go elsewhere to get whatever their you know, script requirements are. And inadvertently they end up with a care plan being done because someone looked at Proder and went, hey, there's billing that I can access and goes and does it. And I know this has been a thorn in a lot of general practice sides for many years. So I can see advantages absolutely in stopping that behavior. Ripka. Uh, yeah, look, you know, it's it's a broad ranging um, conversation, isn't it? And and all of the, uh, the 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 beneficial aspects to do with um, you know the wraparound services for patients, and really sort of speaking to the notion that it's the team that actually delivers the best outcome, and and uh, you know, speaking to that expertise that different health professionals do bring to the table, but with that primacy of a GP as the absolute coordinator at the center of that, together with the patient to decide how that um, evolves and, and how that plays out. You know, that speaks so strongly of, you know, the quadruple aim that we've all been hearing about for a, a long period of time, as well as the uh, Bodenheim building blocks of, you know, high-performing teams and how we know that we get better health outcomes. So those tenets are already really quite well understood because they're not new. They've been around for um, for a, a really long period of time. And I think, you know, some of the, the struggle at this point in time is actually getting our heads around how do we make that happen in a way that is fair and reasonable and, um, you know, a good balance between being the service, that sort of episodic care, which will always be part of healthcare provision versus the more uh, proactive, forward-looking, uh, coordinated care programs. So, you know, we are looking at a different service needs that all need to be sort of wrapped up into that program of, you know, what comes next. So it is absolutely a complex beat. But I think the nuance around what's, uh, what's possible uh, that needs to be fleshed out. And, you know, I'm really hoping that we will come to a common understanding sooner rather than later of what's going to be uh, the best outcome, given that we understand and we can acknowledge that no system is ever going to tick every box and be the absolute model of perfection. We need to start shifting and tweaking and moving on without aiming for the ultimate acceptable, um, you know, program that's uh, that's going to meet everybody's needs. Because I think if that's what we're aiming for, we're just we're going to be having this conversation again, you know, five years down the track, and mm -hmm. that would be very sad. So aiming for uh, for workable and as as good as it can be without necessarily trying to aim for perfect all the time. Um, Tracy, you mentioned uh, earlier the idea of you know, being focused on on patients, and and of course a lot of the language that we're using here is is highly practitioner centric, uh, and the, the concepts that we're using are highly practitioner centric. Um, Kim, you also mentioned uh, the idea of, of patient needs. I, I'm on the central coast of New South Wales, uh, which has a very high population of retirees. It's had a post COVID uh, influx of population from the people essentially. Uh, escaping high rents in Sydney and and moving to uh, lower rents uh, here, trying to find a doctor is the biggest need that many people have. And so from a patient perspective, just being able to say, I have a doctor that I go to, 
is the thing that people can't even get on the first page of. How might these ideas be able to address that question? Absolutely. So again, let's start with data and be pragmatic. We have one of the highest ratios of doctors, particularly GPs, per thousand patients in the world. So at the moment, we're actually sitting pretty in comparison to a lot of countries. So let's go and have a look at what those other countries have done. And I've been privileged. I've spent months and months and months and months of my life over a number of years going and having a look at those other healthcare systems. Not everything is right, but let's not let perfection get in the way of the good is what we're saying, isn't it? So what they've done is they've said, okay, if you know who your patients are, and in other systems in the world, a full-time GP will be caring for anywhere between 2,200 and 2,400, 2,600 patients. In Australia, a full-time equivalent GP generally cares for about six to 800 patients. So that problem of access that you've got, where we've got people flooding in Queensland as well to some of those more regional and um, you know coastal communities, and the first thing they do is want to go and you know connect up with a GP, and they can't. It's happening everywhere. Um, if we actually change the model of care such that it wasn't about your doctor having to give you a, a result that's a good result, you know, we're, we're, we're tying up so much of our medical appointment time with pap smears, with wound dressings, with giving patients results that are okay, with screening them for preventative health stuff, all of these things that actually could be done by other members of the care team. And all of a sudden, you could have a doctor caring for 1,600 patients instead of 800 patients, so you'd be able to get a doctor. But how do you know whether you've got the capacity within your practice to do that if you don't know how many patients your current doctor has and how many of those patients see that doctor as their patient? Because it's got to have both lenses. We've got patients here that we think are our patients, and then we get surprised occasionally because they go somewhere else. Um, so I think if there's that, that commitment, patient to doctor saying, I'm in, you know, we're it. We're in it together. Um, you've got a much greater capacity to plan. And I think in the past, general practice has been very reactive. We responded. We had the luxury of having staffing to just what came through the door. We'd kind of do it. We'd do it well because we're well-trained, we're committed, we're dedicated. We don't have the capacity to react anymore. We've got to be proactive because a lot of our patients don't know what they don't know. They don't know when they're getting unwell. They don't know all of the other things that they need to be doing because they're getting old enough now that there's so many preventative health things that they should be doing as part of surveillance. There's so many vaccines that they should be getting access to beyond COVID um, that they don't know about it. They don't know about their family history and how that's going to impact. So all of a sudden we've got to move into this realm of proactive care. The fastest population growth group in this country are people over the age of 90. The second fastest growing population demographic are those over 100. These are cohorbid, polypharmacy, super complex patients. Even if all we did was registration was start with the elderly and those patients with lots of comorbidities and polypharmacy issues so that we knew who was taking care of them and they knew that we were responsible for taking care of them and we could then assemble a team around them to do that job well. We would be so many leagues ahead of where we are now where we just go, hey, What's going to come through the door each day? Mm-hmm. You know, I cannot imagine a, a worse work role, and I'm an ex-clinician, than going into work each day with a, a diary where there's no bookings in that diary and you just wait for what rolls through the door because you're never going to know when you're going to leave. You're never going to know what you're going to do and who you're going to do it with. To me, that would be terrifying. And yet an increasing number of our practices have moved that way because they need to keep their diaries full to pay for the rent to keep the doors open. So we've actually forced ourselves into suboptimal care that nobody's happy with. This is a reversal to say, let's plan. Let's plan together. Let's be responsible together. And I like that. 
you can't be proactive and systematic if you don't know who your patients are and what they've got. So voluntary patient enrollment might support our practice if it clearly identified who we're accountable for, but also gave us funding that enabled us to provide those systematic and team-based services that they need. So in the absence of funding that supported more nurses and the absence of availability of nurses or other allied health providers or other healthcare workers to work with us, it doesn't add much value to what we're already doing. So within the fee to service structure, we are providing team-based care to the extent that we can. It would be better if the GP didn't have to see every single patient to be able to build them. If the nurses and the allied healthcare providers had much more autonomy, much better for us. Does the question is, does voluntary patient enrollment, will it support that? Will the funding have to, will you have to demonstrate that you're doing that? Or will it just help me buy a better car and we keep doing what we're doing? If feature service works alongside, um, capitation systems, it's difficult for me not to want to still, still bill the fee in addition to receiving the capitation or the registration payment. So there's a, there's a lot of details that need to be worked out to make sure that any changes of VT have a positive impact on the health system. But, but without the, as Tracy said, unless we know who we're looking after and who we're accountable for, it's, it's hard to provide that systematic care. Mm. Tracy, as I heard you speak earlier, uh, you know, I, I began to form a, a fairly pessimistic view, rightly or wrongly, but uh, a pessimistic view of the, the future of, uh, of healthcare. I'm, I'm envisioning a, a country in which, uh, you know, our, our population ages rapidly in which, as you said, we're talking about polypharmacy, very complex, difficult to manage uh, situations in quite elderly patients. We're seeing as a consequence of that, that the impact on GPs in particular and other members of the practice team, the impact on their own emotional and mental well-being. We know COVID's had a pretty brutal impact across healthcare generally and general practice in particular. How do we arrest this, what essentially may become a dissolution of our entire healthcare system? So I really like the acronym that goes around the world, the word team. Together, everyone achieves more. So when you come and work at Anala Primary Care, we're pretty aggressive in our interviewing to say that this is a lobby. You've got to be able to work with others. You've got to be able to work with and through and, and, and with others because we operate a team-based care model within the Medicare funding environment. It's tough. It's messy. It's all of those things. And we'd love to see funding reflect the fact that we have a much higher ratio of nurses here than most GP practices do. We have non-dispensing pharmacists on our team. We have all sorts of things. So, so to talk about the burnout issue, like every other GP practice here, I've lost staff in the pandemic, particularly reception staff that could go elsewhere and earn more money and not be as exposed to disease. Um, but, you know, we've actually running a burnout program at the moment because we're all tired. But what was really interesting is when it came to end of financial year um, a few months ago, you know, it wasn't a pretty picture for us, just like it wasn't for so many other GP practices. And we'd put on some non-dispensing pharmacists and we're really enjoying having them as part of our team. But to be honest, the non-dispensing dispensing pharmacists were not making money for us. Um, so we had a tough conversation as a team to go, okay, do we reduce the hours of the two part-time non-dispensing pharmacists that we have in our team? Do we get rid of them? How can we change things to use the Medicare items more efficiently? You know, what can we do? The team actually went, please, we are prepared to pay for them to stay, um, you know, by not taking some pay rises and other bits and pieces that people were due for, because by having a non-dispensing pharmacist here doing all of these reviews of every patient that's discharged from hospital, 
by being involved in case conferencing, by being part of team care arrangements, all of these other things where the pharmacists were adding their skill set, um, doing medication introduction, sort of health literacy stuff with patients going on new regimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My doctors pleaded with me and said, for God's sake, don't change anything. We will pay for it. And I think that to me was a moment where I went, yeah, burnout's real. And the way to cut through burnout is through team-based care. And our pharmacists are now part of our team. And I cannot possibly imagine a world where they get taken away, even though at the moment, the funding is incredibly awkward. Same with our nurses. You know, we have an amazing group of nurses who have stayed with our practice. Some of them is that have enrolled, came here as enrolled nurses. They've done their registered nurses training and they're now doing master's degrees. They love the work that we do because we allow them to as much as possible under the current funding environment work to their top of scope of practice. You know, I want to see a world where our nurses are running hot clinics um, with patients who've got acute illness on the day, where they're developing up their own special interest areas in hepatitis and heart failure and all of those sorts of things. And they're avoiding for patients who remain under a standing order protocol within target, within range and whatever else. It's actually the nurse seeing a lot more of those patients a lot more frequently and helping them really self-manage because that's the art, isn't it? Keeping people out of primary care and hospital means enabling them to self-manage. Um, nurses in allied health people can do that so long as we've got the funding base to do it. How does government know where to give us the funding base if it's not an activity flag thing where you're seeing the patient, but it's a population-based thing? We've got to enrol people to know who our population is. Hey, everybody. We just wanted to jump in and say a big heartfelt thank you for an amazing year in 2022. Thank you for supporting us as we got this podcast up and running and off the ground. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to bringing you part two in February of 2023. What an exciting year that we have planned. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. And a hearty hi from me, from Rivko. I'd like to wish all our listeners a wonderful festive season and a safe, happy and healthy 2023. We hope you all get a bit of a break over the Christmas time and you come back refreshed, renewed and ready to hit the road running yet again. Thanks for listening to the Medicubes podcast. Make sure you subscribe via your favourite podcast listening app so you don't miss an episode. Medicubes is brought to you by Cubico, MediCoach and Medical Business Services with technical support from the awesome crew at Talking Health Tech. This podcast presents information of a general nature and we recommend that you obtain professional advice for your individual circumstances always. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics on the show. Make sure you visit us via the Minicubes website, which you can access via the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with someone who might get some value from it so we can continue to share these important messages with more people. Speak to you next time.